Hello and welcome to this episode of Before Economics, the history of political economy. When the festive season approaches, it is common to hear various Christian churches worrying that the real meaning of Christmas is being swamped by consumerism. The suggestion is usually that buying and selling goods and services fosters certain attitudes and behaviour that are at odds with true Christian values. Today's thinker, Josiah Tucker, shows not only that this opposition between church and market is quite recent, but that the relationship between Christian theology and commerce is far more complicated than we are normally given to think. In short, Tucker treated market relations as one part of God's providential plan for the government of humans on earth. In England in the middle of the 18th century, far from worrying over commerce, the church was one of its greatest champions. Tucker studied at Oxford and took holy orders, being appointed curate in Bristol in 1737 in his early 20s. With the bravado of a young buck, Tucker entered the publishing world by launching a polemic against Methodism. Yet it was only the beginning of a lifelong habit of fierce intellectual contest with enemies of various stripes. In his late 30s, Tucker became vicar and was shortly after commissioned to write a work on commerce for the Prince of Wales, later George III. The project was never completed, but a portion was privately circulated in 1755, running to over 170 pages, and it is this text that forms the focus for today's episode, The Elements of Commerce and Theory of Taxes. The Elements begins with an account of human nature, in which humanity's divine creation is fully accommodated to the existence of commerce and exchange. Tucker's key move is to view humans in terms of our three capacities, to have the appetites of an animal, to have the affections of a social being, and to have the understandings of a rational agent. Here is Dr. Lorenzo Cello. Josiah Tucker seems to borrow widely from the resources of his period when he sets out his account of human nature. When he says, for example, that mankind uh, are more deficient by nature than any other tribe of beings, he's repeating the claim that was brought to prominence by Samuel Pufendorf. The idea here is that men need human society in order to survive, whereas animals can survive without settled societies and grow to maturity far more quickly and seem to be equipped with instruments needed to survive, for example, clothes, teeth, fur, and so on. In fact, Tucker even says that if we were to think of man simply as an animal, he would be one of the lowest of them all. As social beings, Tucker tells us that man has a social nature. He has benevolent affections or social instincts so that he gets pleasure when he behaves well towards other human beings. Of course, here I'm using gendered language because Tucker did. In setting out such an idea, it seems that Tucker was uh, deeply influenced by the Scottish writers of his time, and such a claim could be found, uh, for example, in Adam Smith, among others. So Tucker draws on these resources to argue that when humans come together, each individual will choose a pursuit that suits their genius. That is, one might be better at making clothing, and the other houses, or still another making wine. And this, for him, is the origin of commerce. Then after this, something very interesting happens. Once commerce ceases to our natural wants, then starts to create artificial wants or social wants. This increase in proportion with the number of ranks and stations in society, its improvements, customs and education, our secular happiness increases uh, with these social goods. It stimulates our self-love. In other words, Luxury activates self-love in humans, and Tucker says that this is a stronger force than our social instincts, meaning our natural tendency to be good to one another. So, on the one hand, self-love is the motor of human society. On the other hand, 
it creates a problem because wealth becomes more important to us than the good of our fellow humans. So where does the solution uh, lie for Tucker? Well, the solution uh, is in our third capacity, our capacity for reason. So we use our reason to make self-love serve the common interest. The state or public wisdom needs to make laws. So that's when an individual pursues the self-love, they do it within uh, schemes and parameters that ensure the common good is not harm. And essentially these laws are Christian morality. In other words, the Christian state directs individual interest by directing commerce. We have come a long way from Thomas Munn and the need to defend the office of the merchant, since we now have a cleric from the established church who was prepared to treat commerce as the engine of society, one capable of being guided by church morality. But how to mobilise Christian morality in the state? Tucker claimed that the state could use one of two approaches to ordering its commerce, penal laws or policy. Policy was to be preferred because penal laws simply terrified people, while policy encouraged citizens to choose the socially good path because it also aligned with their private interests. In relation to marriage, for example, it was clear that its encouragement would serve the public good by civilising men, regulating intercourse between the sexes, and propagating the species. What policy would encourage marriage? Tucker proposed that marriage be made a necessary qualification for certain public offices, and that married men would be free of many of the restrictions regarding movement and occupation. In this way, policy would guide self-love to run in the grooves of Christian morality. But a major task for good policy would be to reverse past abuses. Above all, Tucker had in mind the granting of monopolies in foreign trade, such as those given to the East India Company. It was a joint stock company formed by Royal Charter, and in Tucker's lifetime, it was coming to dominate the Indian subcontinent with its own army and governors. Critics also saw the company as attempting to dominate Parliament through lobbying and by making loans to government in exchange for exclusive trading privileges. Here, then, we have a classic example of Tucker's self-love overcoming the sociable instinct for benevolence, and Tucker targeted the company accordingly. He described foreign trade as the analogue of domestic commerce. It was an expression of human sociability. Exclusive rights, such as those possessed by the East India Company, were therefore a derogation of commerce driven by an abuse of power. Certain subjects were led by self-love to desire inordinate profits, and the despotism of princes had made it possible. The East India Company illustrated the need for Christian morality to underwrite the regulation of the nation's commerce. Without it, government fell into tyranny and commerce into monopoly. Here we see a very different style of Christian critique of the market. The source of the difference does not seem hard to find. Tucker was writing in a context where it was taken for granted that the national church would anchor morality and government. Indeed, he was writing a text intended for the education of the future king. He was writing from the centre of power. Today, by contrast, when church leaders criticise markets or capitalism, they tend to do so as critics attempting to recapture the moral authority that they have lost. This episode of Before Economics was brought to you by the European Society for the History of Economic Thought. Written and spoken by me, Dr Ryan Walter, at the University of Queensland. Special thanks to Lorenzo Cello. The audio engineer was Ni Adepoyubi.